0: The Lord of hosts, unshaken by the devil's seething rage, What's the plan of Satan's minions with the strife from age to age, conquers sin and death forever. Slams them in their steely cage Michael fought the heavenly battle Godly angels by his side what against the ancient serpent For the beast so full of pride Cast <clears throat> with his angels, Now he grows unsatisfied. Long on earth the battle rages, Since the serpent thirsty deceived, Twisted us, command to Adam, made forbidden, fruit took sweet. Then the curse of God, God was spoken, <clears> through thy beneath his feet. Jesus came this world, fulfilling, trampled Satan's death, defied, of our temptation of the wretched tree.
1: Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Praise the Lord, sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the godly. Let Israel be glad in his Maker, let the children of Zion rejoice in their King, let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people, he adorns the humble with salvation. Let the godly exult in glory, let them sing for joy on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their throats, and two-edged swords in their hands, to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the judgment written, this is honor for all his godly ones. Praise the Lord. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Psalm 149 is a call to worship. It is our second to last psalm in the Psalter for this week. We are to praise the Lord for all his acts of salvation We are to sing to the Lord a new song, which is the song of grace, mercy, and forgiveness in Christ. It is not the old song of works righteousness and self justification. Every reference in the psalm to Israel and the saints can be interpreted for us today as referring to the church and all faithful believers in Christ, the saints. We praise the Lord and sing the new song of salvation because he delights in his church and beautifies us with his righteousness that covers all our sin. The two-edged sword is a reference to the word of God. The law condemns, crucifies, judges, and therefore calls to repentance. The gospel proclaims the judgment of God's righteousness, which which is the honor and glory of his saints. Let us pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, grant us faithfulness in our worship that we may truly praise you by singing the new song of salvation in Christ and by faithfully preaching your law and gospel to all, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And this week, we will be having heard about the restoration of Israel and the temple with Ezra and Nehemiah, the Old Testament readings. We have some readings in the ministry of Jesus from John's Gospel now. Uh, John 7, the promise of the Spirit. John 7 and 8, the woman caught in adultery this week. John 9, the wonderful account of sight being restored to the blind man by him who is the light of the world. So, We uh, take leave of our Old Testament readings, and we're looking at ministry of Jesus in the Bible narrative for the week. And those uh, texts uh, in the second reading are chosen to correspond to the material in the first reading. And this week also begins uh, 11 weeks on the table of duties, Christian vocation, certain passages uh, of Holy Scripture. Concerning our stations in life and where we live our faith in the Lord Jesus. In the St. Peter option today, we turn to evolution versus Adam and Christ. There were handouts at the door. I don't know if they're all used up yet. There were, are there still some there, Philip? Okay, so if you didn't get one, you can grab one. And of course, you'll want your Bible. One of the challenges across the board uh, with the challenges to the Christian faith is that nearly every challenge to the Christian faith in the popular culture is the majority viewpoint. So when you have the majority of people out there in the world and the majority of, in this case, the quote-unquote scientific field, all saying one thing, surely truth is in numbers, right? You know, 10,000 scientists can't be wrong. Now, if you change the occupation, then you'll notice how much folly that is. Uh, 385 congressmen can't be wrong. Well, okay, so just because something in our society and culture is a majority viewpoint doesn't mean it's truth. But because it is the majority viewpoint, you see it all over the place. You simply can't not turn on a PBS special that has anything to do with science that does not simply assert evolution as fact you cannot go to any of our national parks, Grand Canyon, Tetons, Yellowstone, and not see little placards 250 million years ago this formed. And all of those long periods of time are necessary according to the evolutionary theory, which is matter... Great lengths of time, random chance, produce life, or life as we know it. And the ages have to be long to fit in with the theory, okay? So the majority worldview can't be wrong, but Jesus says quite the opposite, and The Christian faith, going back since the time of Adam and Eve, was always the minority faith, always, and we need to know that. There was one person who confessed the truth during the week of the Passion, Jesus Christ, Son of God. Even the disciples abandoned him. But the majority viewpoint of the Sanhedrin, the high priest, the scribes, the Pharisees, the elders of the people, even those who had been his followers, who were now strongly tempted to believe he must not be the redeemer because he's being crucified, they were wrong. They were wrong. To turn the other side of the coin, it is the Christian understanding of creation as we've talked about with the global climate change discussion, where God is the creator and we are the creatures, drawing life from him, understanding of the world from him, that's what gives us mental health. That's what gives us spiritual health. And when you set aside God's order, it leads to mental illness, it leads to spiritual illness. Now I'm anticipating something, one of our members, and I'm not going to mention his name because this is recorded and goes out over the, over the airway, but I've received documentation from a local hospital about, you know, gender dysphoria, which used to be a mental illness, but now is no longer, and is being treated and embraced as something that we should support, including the mutilation of children, which is what you have to do to their bodies, to quote unquote make them. A sex change. Now that's coming up when we go looking at wokeism and so forth, and that's down the line. Today we're interested in good old fashioned conventional evolution. And it is um, our burden throughout these studies to connect these things why does it matter to Christ, to the gospel to the Word of God, to how things are, and when we accept things in the world which are contrary to the Word of God, we end up undermining our faith in Christ and what he has done for us. Okay, so I have a little introduction there that includes for us some printed out passages from First and Second Peter. Under the general assertion, evolution must be rejected because it is a denial of a personal God in whose image we were created and redeemed and of the salvation of humanity in the incarnation and resurrection of the Son of God, the second Adam. So understand carefully, to accept evolution ends up denying the personal God. One of the things you have to understand is Darwinian evolution originated from a world view that needed to find a way to explain how things came to be without God. So the basis of the theory is rooted in religion, namely atheism. So, you need to know that up front, that if there is no God who created all things by his word, then we've got to find an explanation for why we are here. Hence, evolutionary theory, where God is defined out of the equation. That's why in this first statement here, to accept evolution is a denial of a personal God of of love in whose image we are both made, and in whose image, then, in Christ we are redeemed. And it is a denial of the incarnation, the enfleshment of the Son of God, and also his resurrection from the dead as the second Adam. 1 Peter 3.18 Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Now, why is this passage there under this discussion of evolution? Because it draws upon also some of the points we have made with respect to race. Namely, that there are not multiple races, but we are all, rather, descendants of the one man, Adam. And evolutionary theory allows for the descent of Homo sapien from various, you know, uh, shall we say, ponds of swamp, you know? And since, according to evolutionary theory... the organisms are advancing and developing, those Homo sapiens that climbed out of this particular swamp origin may, in fact, have advanced further than those who climbed out of this swamp of origin. So the seeds for racism are not in Christianity and the worldview of creation, but rather implicit within evolution, because organisms are advancing and so forth, OK? Do you, do you know who one of the uh, proponents of this was? He lived in the middle, early in the middle of the 20th century. He was short. He had black hair. He had a mustache his program of eugenics and so forth was based on this premise, that the Aryan race is superior to other races, and particularly the Jews, but also blacks and gypsies. How many of your gypsies are are out here? Okay, and so therefore, survival of the fittest. Now, if you think about this, um, according to, we go back to some of our earlier to everyone in answer studies, where there is no absolute truth, then if there is no absolute truth and no objective morality, then why can't Hitler exterminate the Jews? Why not? If if there is no absolute truth and evolution calls for survival of the fittest, well, then let's have at it. Let's kill each other and may the fittest survive. You see? So... All of these things are interrelated if we want to take the premises to their logical conclusion. Okay? So this particular passage, Christ has redeemed all. The just for the unjust that he might bring us all to God. And it's in the passage of 1 Peter 3 where he talks about how eight souls were saved through water. Noah and his family, the descent of the human race from from Noah and his children, and prior to that, Adam and Eve. Uh, Biologists have, there have been some biologists who have noted this, that all of humanity, genetically, can be traced back to three individuals. And their names happen to be Shem, Ham, and Japheth. 2 Peter 1.16, we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now being a Star Trek fan, this passage came to mind when in the movie The Undiscovered Country, where the original cast is about to say farewell from their work. Spock, the Vulcan, has a depiction of the uh, casting out of Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. And the Vulcan, who turns out to be a traitor, the young one, uh, is conversing with him. I don't understand this depiction, she says to him. And he says, it is from ancient earth mythology, the casting out of the Garden of Eden. Uh, if you want to take that worldview as a Lutheran, uh, you can go to the ELCA, where it is considered a myth, that the creation of, of mankind from one man, historical Adam and historical Eve, is a myth. And then the flood is a myth. And the uh, miracles of the Old Testament, the crossing of the Red Sea, is a myth. Okay? Okay. So there are mainline churches. Of course, they're declining rapidly because who wants to belong to something that believes nothing? But in that that Star Trek movie, uh, he identifies it as a myth. And again, that's the popular worldview because no self-respecting, intelligent person would ever believe that all people descended from one man. Come on, that's silliness. But Peter... Speaking to this issue and every other claim of the miraculous in the Bible says, look, we did not follow cunningly devised myths, fables, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And Peter is a witness not only of the majesty of Jesus at the transfiguration, which he refers to directly in this Second Peter passage, if you look at the whole thing, but he's also talking about... Not only the miracles that Jesus performed, we saw them, we witnessed them, and not only the words that Jesus preached, we heard them and witnessed them, but Jesus in his ministry with the twelve affirmed the historicity of creation and the creation of man and the historicity of Adam and Jonah and the whale and so forth. All of these things Jesus affirmed. What backs up Peter's claim we did not follow cunningly devised fables is that though he was weak before the crucifixion and the day of Pentecost and denied his Lord three times, he did not deny his Lord and these assertions of truth when he was called upon to do so by the emperor Nero, but rather was crucified upside down for believing not fables, but truth. In other words, he was willing to die for what the world calls fables. And the reason for it is because Peter, like all of the apostles, takes all of these, they're not disconnected things like, I don't believe in creation as the Bible teaches it, but I believe in everything else. You can't do that because when you set aside Christian doctrine, you are ultimately undermining Christology and the gospel. And that's a very important, Very important uh, thing. 2 Peter 2, 1 through 2. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. So you see how he connects destructive heresies even to the denying of the Lord who bought them. So the redeeming work of Christ is, do I dare use this philosophical term, an ontological reality. What is what I mean by ontological? What we believe as Christians is this tight relationship between word of God and everything else. So you go back to creation, Genesis chapter 1. God said, and it was so. That's true of creation. It's true of the incarnation of the Son of God. It's true of the atonement and resurrection of Christ. That's why Jesus with the disciples, Luke 24, you know, we thought he was going to, it's Easter Sunday, be the Redeemer, but he got crucified. He says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that Moses in the law and the prophets have written. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead? And then, was it not necessary that repentance and forgiveness of sins be preached in his name? So you may not like your body very much now, but the reason why is because you know, it's subject to sin and the curse of the fall that we talked about. But Christ came to redeem us, body as well as soul. So the relationship between the physical world that we observe, including the phenomenon of the physical things that Jesus did, and the word of God are inseparable. So when you deny the physical things and what God says about the physical world, you undermine the certainty of salvation, and it's an attack on the personal God in whose image we are made and the person and work of Christ. So, many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. There's the majority viewpoint again. 1 Peter four nineteen. let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. What I thought was interesting about that passage is, I, I would have expected him to say, to a faithful savior. You know, commit yourself to your faithful savior. And that wouldn't have been theologically wrong, but the word choice there is creator. Okay? Creator and savior go together, and you can't have one without the other, or you undermine the Christian faith. All right. Let me, let me uh, pause just to see if there's any... Uh, Question or thought that you, John, did you? Yeah, i Oh, you know, I should, just a minute, let me, you can go ahead and shout out. I don't it. <laughs> I know, but, but the recording won't pick oh, you up, so God, I know you've got a big mouth, but I mean. Uh, <laughs> to, okay, go ahead then. So I've been concerned uh, recently um, separating uh, fables and stories, and we read to our kids Bible stories. Yeah, and that's very close to being a fable, you know, like Grimm's fairy tales. I know there there is there is in uh, Christian apologetics a concern that to to use the term Bible story implies myth or fable or fairy tale, and. Um, it's an unfortunate, um, I think, um, undermining of how the history of, of words. Because if I were to ask you, John, tell, tell everyone in here your story, we, none of us would presume that you're lying to us. And you're fabricating some myth about your life. Okay? Uh, so I, I think that it can be used... Still, Bible stories, um, as long as one cle- clearly asserts that it is truth. Uh, it's why in the congregation at prayer, though, I have gone from Bible narrative, from Bible story to Bible narrative yes. in the first reading to help underscore that. Now, having said that, the best of literature, and maybe this will come up in a, a number of months. But the best of literature has some components to it, which is why everyone resonates to it. And those components are rooted in the primary story, namely that of the gospel. So the more a story echoes themes from the gospel, even if it's fabricated, the more people generally resonate to it as a good thing. Whether it is an historical event story or a a made-up story. So, like an historical event. As I mentioned with the Twin Towers on 9-11, people who were, and this is historical fact, willing to lay down their lives in hopes of saving some, that resonates as a noble and virtuous thing. Why? Why? because it reflects the ultimate story in the death and resurrection of Christ where he is willing to sacrifice himself for us. All good stories, somehow or other, connect to the gospel, okay? Uh, Amy, you were first. Oops.
0: Do we need to be careful with our young children then in the Bible stories that we read to them not to give them the comic book versions because that makes it look... Like, it's mythology.
1: Uh, well, the comic book versions. Um, let, let me just say this about, about Bible story books I'm in favor of. Okay? Um, just as I'm in favor of parents telling the story of the flood or the story of creation in their own words. Because that's how, that's a part of oral tradition. Okay. And children are reached at their particular developmental age level and so forth. what about the pictures when they have What about the... P- well, yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe you want to avoid cartoon pictures, but um, it, if, if, you're, if, if Becca, when she was younger, drew with crayon... The the Garden of Eden with the tree. Would that mean, since she's is crayon and it's, she did it when she was five years old, that therefore it's not true? So let's let's not be paranoid about that. Let's focus though on making sure we understand and don't buy into the world's uh, idea of myth. Kathy's hand was up over there, virtually.
0: So knowing that the majority of people um, are the, buy into the culture, how, how do you present truth?
1: OK. We're not there yet. OK. okay. I'm, I'm laying the OK. 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 Uh, let's go into the next question then, OK? Because uh, I expect to spend all of next Sunday on the topic as well, all right? What is evolution? Uh, I have three definitions here for you. The first one is from Webster's Universal Dictionary, uh, published in 1937. Quote, in biology, the theory that all existing organisms have arisen as morphological and physiological modifications of pre-existing forms. Now, morphology, you know, morphs into something, Okay that they are genetically related and that the change resulting in present differences has been gradual from the simple and less differentiated to the complex and more highly differentiated now in that sentence genetically related the term genetics was used true or false charles darwin knew about genetics False, he did not. So DNA, which is the basic blueprint of every living organism, plant or animal, what have you, uh, that's where the information is contained on a living organism. And that was not a part of Darwin's theory. It is in the Bible, though, Genesis 1, where each were created according to their kind. The discovery of DNA and the whole field of genetics, you can then look back in the Bible and say, oh, how about that? It's actually there in the scriptures. So, an important theory in connection with evolution is that characteristics <coughs> inherited and those acquired through environment, function, etc., are transmitted to the offspring. That's a theory. But so, if Mark Thoney to continue to have children and then cut off the right arm of all of his children and then when uh, Wyatt and John and Morgan have children that his grandfather cuts off the right arms of the grandchildren and continues that for four, five, six, eight, ten generations. Would it alter eventually the children born? It, It doesn't. But that's an assertion. Remember, sometimes assertions are made, like in our world today, that are simply accepted as fact. Don't be so quick to, to accept presuppositions as fact. What is the evidence for this? Which is one of the problems with evolutionary theory. It cannot be tested. Therefore, it's not a scientific, it's not a scientific theory. It's a metaphysical theory or a religious theory proposition. In metaphysics, the evolution theory of the origin of species is that later species have been developed by continuous differentiation of organs and modifications of parts from similar and less differentiated, and that, thus, all organic existences, even man himself, may be traced back to a simple cell. Now, moving forward to 1983, the concise Columbia Encyclopedia, defines evolution this way. Organic evolution conceives of life as having begun as a simple primordial protoplasmic mass from which arose through time all subsequent living forms. Now, that I, I love that term, primordial protoplasmic mass, because that's ancient paganism. From the Greco-Roman world that saw matter as eternal, in this case the primordial protoplasmic mass, from which then uh, the gods were able to fashion stuff. Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, the first clearly stated theory of evolution that proposed by Jean Lamarck in 1801, included the inheritance, that predates uh, Darwin, uh, the inheritance of acquired characteristics as the operative force in evolution. So you know all of the business. They had to... The giraffe's necks got longer because whatever these horses were had to keep you know, reaching up, and then over time, their necks lengthened. And we believe in myths. Well, anyway, subsequently, 1858, Alfred Russell Wallace and Charles Darwin independently set forth a scientifically credible theory. Now, notice the prejudice in the definition of evolution based on natural selection, focusing on the survival and reproduction of those species best adapted to the environment. And natural selection, and the other phrase that you're familiar with, survival of the fittest, So if you have survival of the fittest and natural selection devoid of theology of objective truth and right and wrong allows for an Adolf Hitler to arise and work the natural selection uh, process, okay? So I I included these actual citations to show you that the quote-unquote theory of evolution has been around quite a long time, and if you... One of the one of the things that propaganda does is, if you say something long enough, repeatedly enough, and in enough circles, eventually people will believe that it is the truth. Uh, we have a Angela over here.
0: So I remember learning in high school and in college about vestigious or vestigial structures in your body—your tonsils, your appendix, your pinky toes, your wisdom teeth, Yes,
1: things from a bygone. No all of these necessary. things that
0: you're, through the generations are being, you know, kind of not needed due to, um, you know, climate or whatever. You know, things that we're doing these days, um, things that your body doesn't need and can be removed. Um, how does that play into this?
1: Well, it's, it's part of the natural selection thing. And there's what we had in this last definition. Um, the, you know, the credible theory of evolution based on natural selection focused on the survival of the fetish and prior to that subsequent living, living forms um, that the, the acquired characteristics are the operative force in evolution that, that those who couldn't survive because they didn't have the right equipment died off. And those who had the right, you know, those whose necks were starting to grow a little bit, they survived, so they passed down the longer neck to the next generation. And if some in the next generation had shorter necks, they died. And then those who had longer, okay. Now, there's, there, there's a certain amount of, um, uh, what we can see, traits. The Tower of Babel, for example, the DNA of Shem or Ham and Japheth was not identical. They're related, but they're not identical. They're all related through Adam and then back to, or through Noah and then back to Adam. Um, but when you have the same people group, certain ca- characteristics, the same thing with dogs, you know, are going to be emphasized. But they're still dog, that kind okay, they're still man, that kind, even though those in Africa uh, have a darker pigment in their skin, okay? Uh, yes? Um,
0: Pastor, can, yep. you, can you comment on the, the concept of intelligent design, which, which I, I believe more scientists are embracing now, and does that... Does that lend itself to accepting?
1: Sure. Uh, and intelligent evolution? design is a field, um, uh, is a term that's developed from uh, scientists relatively recently, over the last 40 years especially, who have attempted, at, with, without a particular Christian bias, they've attempted to look at the, the data, the evidence, and uh, particularly with the origin of the universe and the place of Earth in our solar system specifically and in the universe at large. And uh, I'm not going to go into it at length today. Uh, maybe we can take it up and even show the video that I showed some years ago on, on uh, called the Privileged Planet. But One of the things that they have observed is that the, in order for carbon-based life forms to exist there are so many factors involved in that and in the case of our own planet um, I had no idea the role of the moon its size its distance from the earth the significance of the orbit of the earth being tilted on its axis the distance of Earth and its orbital satellite, the moon, and its distance from the sun, that uh, the, the, the precision with which this all has to take place make us truly a privileged planet, okay? Including how, how the moon, among other things, uh, and the magnetic field, shields the earth from the harmful rays of the sun. If that didn't happen, we would not survive. I mean, there's all kinds of of things with that. Uh, Another thing that was uh, noted in that is that the Earth, out of any other planet that has yet been discovered in, like, the Milky Way, is situated in the unique position to be able to observe outside of our solar system and universe, or or outside of our uh, galaxy, solar system and galaxy. So... uh, That also squares with the Bible that he wants us to delight in his creation and the affirmation that the best of scientists in the West were all Christians originally, and uh, that the Christian faith was not a deterrent to discovery and learning, which is a hallmark of science, but God wants us to observe his creation and then to rejoice and delight in it. So uh, a lot of these uh, scientists who started out just observing the data in the intelligent design uh, field have come to the conclusion, as did Albert Einstein, there has to be a God. Okay? And so in that sense, we would um, affirm and resonate with them. All right, this concise contemporary definition uh, that I put together that life arose from lifelessness spontaneously through a process of random, accidental chemical processes over millions of years. Complex forms of life arose from earlier simple forms of life through a process of natural selection, influenced by the environment and the organism's innate desire to continue to live. And that is posited of evolution. That once life, spark of life came, that there is an innate, I put it in quotes, desire for for that life to continue. Uh, That's, again, a presupposition. how, How do you know life desires to continue? Uh, It also flies in the face of contemporary experience where life is degenerating. Susan Gelbach, uh, Mark. That desire to live, that's one of those things we've been hearing in the last two years where they're saying the virus is mutating so that it can defeat whatever we're doing in this battle against it. And viruses aren't even alive. They're not bacteria. They're, they're not alive. But because we have bought into this desire to live things so much, that's all over the news. All right, flip the page. What are the consequences of evolutionary theory? Now, these 10 theses, I um, wonder why 10 theses were chosen. but. Uh, this, these are ten theses that are gleaned from the Old and New Testament biblical record. And then in what follows after that, notice what is the biblical origin of humanity. you have got Genesis 1, Genesis 2. What is the relationship between biblical creation and soteriology? That's a fancy word for the doctrine of salvation. Uh, and you've got Mark 10, Matthew 19... John 1, Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15, and so forth. So uh, we'll look at uh, all of those texts uh, next week. But these 10 points are gleaned from those texts as well as others in the Scripture. So it's kind of a, a primer. And uh, Kathy, this is uh, in part an answer to your question then. You know, how do we speak of these things? And what I am after with you is that you first understand why it is important to hold to the biblical view of creation. And it's important because it has everything to do with our salvation, our relationship to God, and what it is to be human as men, women, and so forth. And so it goes back to the theme I've been trying to emphasize with you. You can't be experts in every religious philosophy that attacks Christianity. So you need to be experts and learn more deeply the faith of the catechism, first article, second article, third article, and the biblical support for that. it answers the question why it matters. Why, I mean, why not? Why does, you know, and there's been a lot of Christians that have tried to meld the two together, evolution and creation, under something called theistic evolution, where um, God has manipulated evolution over time. And so things like the uh, six days of creation are not literal days, but are eons of time. And that's very dangerous because it flies in the face of the text itself, not only of Genesis, but of what Jesus said about the dating. Okay? Um, And with that, it again denies the historicity of the man, Adam, from whom we all descended. So these 10 points we will highlight now today and then refer back to them as we go through the texts next week. Number one, what are the consequences of evolutionary theory? The denial of a personal God who is creator and upon whom the creation depends, which is clearly stated in Genesis 1. Number two... The replacing of the Holy Trinity, one God in three persons, with the pagan gods of, quote, preexistent matter, that was from the definitions, you know, and, quote, primordial protoplasmic mass, okay? Do you understand what a personal God means? It means I can have a relationship with the deity, and the deity with me. And the reason why the God of the Bible, the triune God, is superior to all other gods, among other things, is, well, first and foremost, because he is God, okay, revealed in the Bible. But no other deity is a community of eternal persons of love. So there's a self-sufficiency within the Trinity, and that self-sufficiency is characterized by love, self-giving love, creative love, sacrificial love. This is the problem with the Muslim god, Allah. He requires something from outside of himself to make him complete, There's an egotism there with the Muslim deity. They believe in only one God, but he's a unity and not a trinity. And so he craves attention. He craves a worship, like people who insist they have to be appreciated or they pout. So they live... For the appreciation of others. And that's, of course, that's part of our sinful nature. But we're talking about the, the, the triune God of love, this personal God. Um, here is, you know, Cherie's uh, thermos. I suppose she could like this thermos. You know, it's her favorite thermos ever. Ever. Ever, you know, ever. and she just, you know, fondles this. so she I have think a. Person, you take it to bed with you. you know, you, you can't you see the absurdity of that. You can't have a personal relationship with a thermos. If you do, as if the thermos is conscious and able to both receive your love and also return it to you, then they will lock you up uh, someplace because it's a form of mental illness. Oh well, they don't. Now they affirm it. Yeah, okay. All right. So, number three, evolutionary progressive morality. So, morality is evolving. We see this in our society and culture where accepted universal truths, which are a part of natural law written upon a human being's heart, are no longer absolute morality. And that that grows right out of evolutionary theory. So what was good for the society and culture 200 years ago no longer is. And so you see that today in the political realm where uh, the Constitution of the United States and the Bill of Rights are deemed to be out of date. They need updating. Okay. Say again? Is the, the phrase being on the right side of history, is that what you're talking about? Well, I suppose you could say that. I mean, see, how do we evaluate truth for us as Christians? On the basis of the scriptures. Now, this phrase being on the right side of history, Susan, there are times when the church has screwed up. Like, when... Uh, scientists were persecuted, Christian scientists, because of, they asserted that the world was round and not flat. They were persecuted not because the Bible says the world is flat, which is false, but because of a false reading on the Bible. Okay? So also, when it comes to racism, okay, we've asserted that there is only one race. But there have been many Christians down through the ages, okay, that have discriminated on the basis of skin color or on the basis of culture. That's a bona fide fact. But it goes back to the Tower of Babel and, you know, the, the tug of war there. Christians are, are always to be in a position of Creatureliness and humility before God, but the criterion of whether you're on the wrong or the right side of history is not the development of history. Okay, so now we, what is, are we on the wrong side of history because of critical race theory? You know, are we on the wrong side of history because we should embrace gender dysphoria and consider it normal? I would beg to differ. Okay, we're on the wrong side of that history. So, Sometimes we are, sometimes we aren't. But the criterion for truth is the word of God, not my emotions and feelings. And how often in your own families, you know, you have somebody who is tempted to um, same-sex relationships. Fifty years ago, that was taboo. It's not any longer. It's promoted and celebrated in the culture. So are we on the wrong side of history with that? We have a separate topic on LGBTQ uh, down down the line, okay? So, again, the objective criterion is the word of God, not our feelings or the popular culture or the majority worldview. And number four, the denial of the uniqueness of the human person. One of the things, and we'll be... Uh, devoting time to this as the weeks unfold. Who God has made you to be is a good thing. I talked in Bible class last week about being a a woman, a wife, a mother, a a man, a husband, a father. We in the church need to hold these things up as good things. Okay, Uh, Not only good things, but the way to mental Health and well-being, not only for ourselves as individuals and our families, but also for the, for the society and culture around us, which is why in the St. Peter option, we don't want to just stick our head in the sand. We want to hold up the Christian worldview in terms of human sexuality, marriage and family as good and be unapologetic for it, as the way as the alternative to the worldview. You want to listen, uh, it was a very brief interview, but very good on issues this week, issues, et cetera, where a woman who had been abused sexually as a child, because of the abuse, felt she had to emasculate her body and change from being a girl into being a boy. And now, today, in a hospital I'll refer to, very well known in the area, that is promoted as exactly the correct treatment for her. She needs to be affirmed, and she may be 12 years old or 15 years old, but she needs to be affirmed that she is not a girl, she's a boy, and she needs to be taken um, uh, hormone therapy, and she needs to have surgery which will emasculate her body. That is happening in the world today. Now, I'm going to get a little bit ahead of myself. We will talk about wokeism and CRT critical race theory which plays into pair here and this is why it's these things this is not diversity this is not equity but these are some of the things that certain theologians are concerned about coming into our own universities it's not it's not a dispute over personalities it's a dispute about substantive theology that undermines the Bible humanity, the Trinity, and the person and work of Christ and obliterates it. Other than that, we should embrace it, you see. So this is why we've got to know what we believe and why we believe it to be able to offer the alternative worldview. All right, number five, the denial of the creation of man in the image and likeness of the triune God of love, which is related to the previous assertion, the denial of the human person, And here, the denial of the triune God of love in whose image and likeness we are created. Number six, uh, the denial of the historicity of Adam as one from whom all humanity descended, as the one. Uh, That's a very important point. And Jesus and the apostles firmly assert the historicity of Adam and the descent of all humanity from the one man, which then leads into... Uh, what is number eight, a rejection of the dominion over the creation that God gave to Adam, and then nine, a denial of the incarnation of the Son of God as the second Adam and redeemer of fallen humanity, Uh, and ten, a denial of the atonement of Christ and its resulting resurrection of the body. All right, now we'll come back to these. I just wanted to kind of talk you through. We're out of time here for today. But we'll go into texts uh, from the Bible supporting these things, along with certain uh, examples from uh, contemporary uh, life in the world. Okay. Grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all.